Good morning. Not a bad little setup. Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, we come before you as a family and we love your word. We love you. Um, we want to thank you for what you've done for us, what you continue to do for us. And, um, and Father, we just want to pray that as we come together this morning that, that we'd just be open, that our hearts would be open, that our eyes would be open. And Father, we thank you that you're the author and perfecter of life. We thank you that you have a word for us this morning and you want to depart that word on us. You want to put that in us and you want us to walk away, Father, as, as children who are carrying your word and carrying your spirit into the world we go into. And so, Father, we just thank you that we can come together and enjoy you this morning. And Father, we just um, we desperately want to make much of you in this life. So help us to do that in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we are looking at a passage in Mark 6, and um, I've just been blown away by this passage. It's um, sitting in this has has, um, just really encouraged me this week. But in Mark 6, verse 1, we read this. We read, Jesus left there, and he went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. Um, So this is the second time that Jesus has been to Nazareth. Um, the first time that he went back to his hometown, we read that in, uh, in Luke 4. Um, and in Luke 4, we read the account of, uh, of Jesus going to Nazareth that didn't go down too well. Um, so we read in, in Luke 4, verse 14, um, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and he went to Nazareth um, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of the people were upon him. So we read Jesus getting up in front of the synagogue and, um, and saying this um, in the first time that he goes back to his hometown. And, um, and what, what we read in Luke 4 is that Jesus says a few more things that are obviously reasonably controversial um, because the next thing, the synagogue leaders and all the people are driving Jesus to the edge of a cliff and they're trying to throw him off the edge of this cliff. Um, and, uh, and we read in, in Luke 4 um, that... All the people in the synagogue were furious with him. Um, They got up, drove him to the edge of the town, took him to the brow of the hill um, on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. And then this beautiful verse in Luke 4 verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Um, So quite a a miraculous moment, but quite a, it would have been a fascinating moment to, to witness if you're one of the crowd just sitting there abusing Jesus and he just walks on through. So in Mark, in, in, in Mark, Mark is very um, fixated on, on describing Jesus as the Messiah. And in the, in the book of Mark, we read all these accounts of Jesus' miracles. Um, in the opening chapters of Mark, um, we read um, 
about all these healings. Um, we read um, um, about evil spirits that he has, um, he has taken out of people. We read in, in, uh, in Mark 2 about when Jesus um, has a, a paralyzed man um, lowered into him in the middle of a service and, and he heals the paralytic. The passage in Mark 1 that really framed um, what Jesus was doing and, and the extent of what he was doing for the, for the people who were around him um, It's found in Mark 1, verse 31. He heals um, Simon's mother-in-law, and in verse 32 we read, um, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, and the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. We read that he heals people with leprosy. We read that he heals people with shriveled hands. Um, we read, we heard last week about Jesus calming the storm with his um, disciples. And so we get, to, we get to Luke 6 and we read this, Jesus left there and he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. The first time that Jesus went to Nazareth, he went by himself. And this time he made sure he brought back up when he went back to his hometown because he knew um, that he was a prophet that was not going to be honoured in his own hometown. Now, as we get to Luke 6, the build-up for Jesus and his disciples has been quite a miraculous one. Jesus is out there and he is healing those who are sick. Um, He is um, having a huge impact in the way that he is teaching and he is getting a huge following. And we arrive at Luke chapter 6 with Jesus having a lot of momentum. People are talking about Jesus. Um, people are, have been miraculously changed by Jesus. And if you're in, in Mark 1, we read this, this, um, this section where the whole town is, has heard of what Jesus is doing and they believe what he is doing and they line up through the middle of the night um, to bring all their sick and those who are demon-possessed to be healed by Jesus. The whole town comes and gathers and witnesses um, him doing these things. And so the name of Jesus um, is going and spreading um, everywhere. We read this passage in Mark 5, and I want us to, we're looking at a prophet without honour today um, in Mark 6. But what I want to do is I want to look at when Jesus is honoured, because that's what I want to sit in today, what it looks like to honour Jesus and to honour each other. And in Mark 5, we read a passage that has just absolutely blown me away this week. In Mark 5, verse 21, if you've got your Bibles, open up to it. We read this. When Jesus had again crossed over, over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. So Jesus is in Capernaum at the time. So this is around um, eight hours, nine hours um, from Nazareth. Um, I looked it up. It's a 45-minute Uber trip, but... Um, it's about an eight-hour, nine-hour walk to Nazareth. And so he, um, he's in Capernaum at the time, just before he goes to Nazareth. And then we read this in verse 22. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. And here is this request. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. What a request. So here is this man who comes before Jesus, falls at his feet and begs Jesus, please Jesus come with me and heal my daughter because she is sick and she is going to die. 
about a month ago, Eli had these stomach pains and we were at home and they started getting really, really bad. And, um, and we've, been, we've done a lot of hospital trips and a lot of trips to Westmead, but on this night, like, it was, it was quite a full-on night for us. And um, the pains in his stomach, like, he was curled up in a little ball on the couch. He was screaming out in pain. And, um, and so at 10 o'clock at night, we, we do the Westmead trip and Amy takes him into Westmead. And one of the things with Westmead Children's, um, Westmead Children's, I couldn't speak more highly about Westmead Children's Hospital. They have, um, they have honoured us, my family and my, my boys so many times. The one thing they do not have, and I'm sure there are good reasons for this um, that Alison can tell me about later, the one thing they do not have is reception. And so once, you, um, once you're in the, in the doors... And you take, um, you take, you're in the emergency section, you don't get phone reception. And, um, and we were there, and so Amy took Eli in at 10 o'clock at night, and um, I'm sitting at home not having any idea what, what, is, what is going on for him. And um, Amy did her best. She came out a couple of times and like messaged me, like telling me what was going on, but the doctors didn't know what was going on. It was a really long night. And I was sitting at home and I was sitting there, and one of those moments as a dad where I just went, I am so incredibly helpless right now. There are so many things like as a parent that we want to provide for our kids and look after our kids or our grandkids and there are so many things in life that we can control but this was one of those moments where I'm sitting at home and I have absolutely no control over what is going on. I have no knowledge about what what is going on and I have no way of actually doing anything um, for Eli except for praying. And it was one of those moments where I sat there and went, I am so thankful that I follow a father and I'm in relationship with a father that is interceding for my family in a way that I cannot um, guard my family in that moment. I was so incredibly thankful that I am in relationship with the creator of all the universe who knew what was going on for my little son and my boy um, and um, and could intercede in a way for him that I could never. Um, It was one of those moments for me that I sat there and went, I am incredibly helpless and yet I am not incredibly helpless. And so here we have this moment where Jairus, his little daughter is dying. She is at home and, 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 and she is dying. And what does he do? In many ways, he is helpless, and yet he makes this trip to go and see Jesus, this rabbi, and he goes and falls at his feet as soon as he sees him and says, Jesus, my daughter is dying. Will you come and lay hands on her? It's this cry of a father for his daughter where he is helpless. He has no means with which to be able to help her. The only thing that he can do is walk up to Jesus and get on his knees and beg Jesus. And it's the most beautiful picture of what honour looks like. Here you have the creator of all the universe, the one that breathed stars and all the beauty in this world into existence. Here you have the author and perfecter of life um, walking amongst mankind. And Jairus sees him. Out of all the people that he could have gone and had this request to, Jairus sees Jesus and he has faith in Jesus that Jesus is the rabbi he claims to be. And he goes and he falls on his feet in desperation for his daughter, his 12-year-old daughter. And in verse 24, we read this this one little simple line that it's so easy to brush over, but it sums so much up about the God that we follow. And it says, so Jesus went with him. Jesus went with him. On the journey, um, they, they come across a, a woman who, um, who had been sick for a long time. She'd been bleeding for a long time. And, um, and the woman goes up to Jesus and, and touches his, his, his clothes. 
And Jesus turns around and says, who touches me? And then it says in verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the truth. He said to her, daughter, your, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Notice the posture of this woman. She falls at the feet of Jesus on her knees. Daughter, your faith has healed you because of what she did. In verse 35, we pick up the story with Jairus again. And it says, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and proclaimed this, your daughter is dead. There is no like worse thing that as a parent you are ever going to hear. And here is this message that comes from two people from his, um, from his house. And they come up to Jesus and Jesus had just performed a miracle for someone else. And if you were Jairus and you're on this journey and you are sitting there and your, your little girl is dying at home, you know she's dying at home, there'd be this moment that probably there'd be this human nature inside of you that is sitting there going, we wasted some time. My little girl is sick at home. She is dying at home. He gets this message. Your daughter is dead. And how good is this? <laughs> They say to him, these are the people from his house, why bother the teacher anymore? Jairus has just lost his little daughter and the message that has come to him is that his little daughter has died and the, thing, the first thing he hears from the people from his own house, don't bother the teacher anymore. We say some funny things, don't we, sometimes? And then I love this in verse 36. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. What a beautiful response. These two men from Jairus' house have come and they have proclaimed death. And Jesus' response, (laughs) ignoring what they said. Don't be afraid, just believe. What an intimate moment. Here is this dad who has lost his daughter. And here is Jesus walking side by side with him and turning to him and and saying to him, do not be afraid, just believe. In verse 37, it says, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. They've just experienced death. And he walks into Jairus' house and there is death everywhere. There is sadness everywhere. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. What a thing to hear if you have just witnessed this 12-year-old girl pass away. What a thing to hear for a rabbi to walk in and say that. The child is not dead, but asleep. In verse 40, their response is that they laughed at him. A very human response. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kaum which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And in verse 42 we read, immediately the girl stood up and walked around. 
At this, they were, given, they were completely astonished and he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. I'm blown away by this passage. I've read this, I read this years ago, but I haven't read this in quite some time. I'm blown away by this passage because here you have this man who intercedes for his family. He walks up to Jesus in faith, in desperation. He gets down on his knees before Jesus and says, please, Jesus, heal my daughter. And then Jesus takes the time to walk with him to his house, to comfort him along the way, and then walks in. And where there is death, Jesus walks in and speaks life. And all he does is he keeps encouraging people to see in faith, to not see what is right in front of you, but to see in faith what he is going to do, to see a picture of what he is going to do in the future. And you have this this passage and you have this posture where Jairus honours the king. He honours Jesus. He gets down on his knees before him and he begs for, um, for his daughter's life. And one of the things I wanted to encourage us in is our postures. There are so many things in our life that are, that are going on for us. Some of them are small, some of them are big. Some of them are personal, some of them are corporate. But there are things that are going on for us and Jesus has such a better viewpoint of our lives and the things that are going on in our lives than we can possibly have for our own. The thing that we constantly fall into the trap of and the thing that Satan is very good at is getting us to see what is right in front of us. And what Jesus is constantly reminding us is that we are people of faith that we are people who are called to put our trust in Jesus and allow him to speak into the situations that are going on for us. What does Jairus do really well? What Jairus does really well is he invites Jesus into his house. He could have invited all these other doctors and maybe he'd already done that, but the thing that he did was invite Jesus into his house. And because he invited Jesus into his house, his 12-year-old girl was raised from the dead. That was the conclusion of inviting Jesus into his house. So you think about the situations that are going on for us. They might be in your family. They might be for your kids. They might be for your grandkids. They might be for your parents. The situations that are going on for us is our natural posture to invite Jesus into our house. Is our natural posture to invite Jesus into all the little details that are going on for us. There might be things in your life where you're struggling with money. Um, There might be issues where you're struggling with yourself, where you're struggling with depression, whatever it is. The reminder I want to give us this morning is that we have a father who really cares. We have a father who wants to walk with us and journey with us. And the thing that he wants from us is to invite him into those situations. Because when we invite Jesus into those situations, he speaks life and not death. And he has a perspective on things that we will never be able to have. Where we lose hope, he carries hope. Where we lose faith, he carries faith. As a church, we are going through so much. And what I want to remind us of this morning is that we cannot get through the situations that we have um, through physical means. We cannot get through the the situations that we are in um, by ourselves. The thing that we will do in this season as a church and as a family and as a body is invite Jesus in. And in all the discussions that we have, in all the meetings that we have, the thing that we have to be really, really good at is humbling ourselves, getting on our knees and inviting him into every situation that we are in. In every conversation that we are having about our church and about where we are going, 
Can I encourage us as a family to be inviting Jesus into those conversations? It sounds fundamental, but the thing that Satan wants to do is to close our eyes and blind us and get us to concentrate on ourselves. The thing that Jesus wants us to do is to invite us in on the journey because when we do that, what does he do? He raises daughters from the dead. He raises sons from the dead. And if he can raise daughters from the dead, I'm pretty sure that he can, he can fix the issues and the things that are going on for us in our own lives and can paint a much more beautiful picture for us as a church than we could possibly paint for ourselves. So Jairus honours the king. And that's what happens when you honour the king. When you honour the king, daughters are raised from the dead. It's a pretty good conclusion, yeah? So then we see Jesus and his disciples walk to Nazareth, his hometown. So in verse 1 we read, Jesus left there and he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. So Jesus has been here before and the last time he was here, they tried to throw him off a cliff, but he goes back again. Now hear this, many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? So the people of Nazareth who are hearing what Jesus is saying, they're seeing who he is, what are they carrying? The questions they're asking, where's this guy's wisdom come from? They're sitting there amazed at his teaching and they're not denying the miracles that Jesus has performed. They're not denying the hands that have been unshriveled. They're not denying the leprosy that has been healed, the demons that have been been cast out. They're not denying any of the miracles that Jesus has performed. And they sit there with amazement and ask the question, where has this man's wisdom come from? And then Satan starts whispering and he's very good at what he does. In verse 3 we read this. Now remember, they are claiming that Jesus is wise and they are not denying the miracles that Jesus has performed. In verse 3 we read, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this... Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon aren't his sisters here with us and they took offence at him. Now that verse there in verse 3 is loaded. Isn't this the carpenter? Now we've looked at this before but in, um, in Jewish culture when you dropped out of school at different levels you would go and you'd learn your father's trade and in Jewish culture Basically, everyone who was doing a trade if it was a dropout at some point. And unless you were like learning in the synagogue, unless you were a rabbi, uh, learning from a rabbi, then at some stage along the way, you had dropped out of school. Really good thing in my mind. But this is loaded, right? This comment isn't, just, isn't meant to be a compliment. Isn't this a carpenter? So here is this man in front of the synagogue who is teaching um, with such authority and such wisdom. He's gone off and performed all these miracles and they don't doubt the miracles, but they sit there and because he was a dropout, because he was a carpenter, they're sitting there questioning 
Who is this man to teach us? Who is this man to stand in front of, in front of the synagogue, in front of us, and teach the way, in the way he is doing so? In verse, when we go on to read, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Isn't this Mary's son? Think about it. For Mary and Joseph, and for the people around them, people would have been looking at a young Mary and Joseph, and that was an illegitimate birth. Mary and Joseph weren't married, and it was a divine moment, we know, But there would have been many whispers. There would have been many people looking at Mary and Joseph as a young couple and going, we know what you did. These comments aren't compliments. Isn't this Mary's son? We know where you've come from, is what they're saying. We know your brothers. We know your sister. We know your upbringing and you are nothing special. Who are you to be saying what you are saying to us? Who are you to be teaching with the authority that you have to us? You're a carpenter. We know your family. We grew up with you. You probably built our house. All these comments are to write off and dismiss what Jesus is teaching and the life that he is bringing. And so here you have this really low vision of his life. These people don't deny his wisdom, they don't deny his miracles, but what they do is sit in judgment of Jesus. And then verse 4 has just absolutely blown me away all week. In verse 4 we read, Jesus said to them, only in his hometown amongst his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honour. He could not do any miracles there. (laughs) We're talking about the author of life. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. He was amazed at their lack of faith. When Jairus went up to Jesus, humbled himself before him and put Jesus and honoured Jesus in the right position, his daughter was healed. And when people sat there and judged Jesus and questioned Jesus and had a really small vision for Jesus, we read that he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. The judgment that was carried by the people in the synagogue that day, the judgment that was carried by the people in his hometown, literally stopped miracles from happening. It literally quenched the spirit. And there were probably 12-year-old girls in Nazareth who were struggling at that time and probably sick and dying. But there was not a culture of faith in that place. And so people genuinely went without getting healed because of the lack of faith that the people in Nazareth were carrying. And I love this human response from Jesus where he says he was amazed at their lack of faith. And so the question for us today is this posture that we take. As disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, what is the posture that we take? Because Jairus humbled himself. He got on his knees and he invited Jesus into his situation, into his house. The people of Nazareth did the complete opposite. They stood in judgment of Jesus. 
And they allowed Satan to whisper all these different things into their mind and into their hearts. And Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Jairus honoured the king. He had an expectation and he carried faith. The people of Nazareth were proud and blind and judgmental and controlling. Jairus looked forward to what Jesus could do. And the people of Nazareth looked back in judgment on who Jesus had been, on his upbringing, on all the reasons why the wisdom and the miracles and the life that he was speaking should be written off. So these are the two postures that we can sit in, one of humility or one of pride. When we sit in judgment, this is where like Satan's domain is. This is where like he just absolutely has a field day. Because judgment is where we look back. So where we look at all the different reasons why um, there are things wrong with us or things wrong with other people. And if you think about it, Satan is the accuser and he is very good at accusing. He's very good at writing lists. He's very good at, having a, at getting us to have a very small vision, a small vision for God and a very small vision for each other. The thing that Satan wants us to do is critique each other is to look at all the different reasons why we cannot do something. It's to look at each other with a very small vision for each other's lives. He wants us to write lists against each other. He wants us to box each other. He wants us to make each other small. Not just in the church, but in every area of our lives. He wants us to sit in judgment. And the thing that we carry is that we are people who are free. The old life is gone, the new life has come. Everything that was against us, everything that we have ever done in this life has been covered by grace. We are set free. We are children of God. The Father has come running towards us and put a ring on our finger and a robe on our back and invited us into his house, into a whole new way of life. And so we don't sit there with the Father in any sort of judgment. When he looks at us, he sees purity. When he looks at us, he sees his child and he is extremely proud of what he has created. That's what the Father carries with us. The thing that God is really good at is not looking backwards at all the things that we may have have done in our lives. That's what Satan wants to do. And that's what Satan wants us us to do with each other. And it's what the people of Nazareth did. They looked backwards. And you missed miracles. But love, by its very definition, is where we serve each other, where we lay our lives down for each other, but it's where we have a greater vision for each other's lives than we could possibly have for our own. This is how Jesus sees us, yeah? When we wake up in the morning, when we come to church, when we go through the rhythms of our lives, when we're at our worst and at our best, Jesus sees us through the lens of love. He sees us through the lens of grace. And this is how we are called to see each other. It's where we're called to have a heavenly vision for each other. Where we are on this journey of sanctification, where we are being made more and more and more like Jesus. We are going to spend eternity with each other. And the thing that we are called to do is to speak life over each other. The thing that we are called to do is have a big vision for each other's lives. A bigger vision for each other's lives than we could possibly have for our own. 
Because the thing that leaders do and the thing that Jesus constantly does with us is he looks forward. He doesn't get stuck on what is happening in the moment. He doesn't get stuck on the past. He knows that grace has covered that, not cheaply as Bonhoeffer would say, but he knows that the price for the sins that we have, um, have committed in our lives is, is, um, has been great. His death on the cross is the ultimate sacrifice and so our pasts have been wiped clean. And so we walk judgment-free in this life. We carry a purity in our lives that we did not carry before because of what he has done for us. And so therefore we're called to look forward. We're called to be people of faith and we're called to have big vision for each other. We're called to have big vision for the church that we, we, we love. We're called to have big vision for our family. And the way in which we will do that is that we invite Jesus into every single situation. We invite him into the small moments and into the big moments. Because if we take a posture like, like Jairus, where we get down on our knees and that is our, our, our habit, that is what is our normal rhythm in life, then I promise you we will see miracles. What I never want to be is someone who sits there and knows that there are miracles happening and knows of the wisdom that Jesus carries but sits there and critiques it and goes, yeah, that's not for me. We want to be a church that is faith-filled. We want to be a church like Jairus who humbles ourselves before God, invites him on the journey and then witness and experience things that we never, ever, ever thought possible. And where everyone around us may be saying death, we want to be people who carry life. And the way that we will do that is to honour the king and to be like Jairus instead of being like the people of Nazareth. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that you walked amongst us. You're not a father from a distance. You're a father that is incredibly personal. You're a father that knows all the things that we are carrying, all the things that are going on in our lives, and you care about them. I want to thank you for this story of Jairus. Father, I want to thank you that you walked with that man in his pain and in his suffering, in his doubt, in his fragility. Father, you walked with him. And when he was vulnerable, you stood by him and you walked into his house and you proclaimed life where there was death. Father, I want to pray that prayer over us. I want to pray that you would help us to invite you into every situation that is going on in our lives. Father, I want to pray that we would be people who just carry your life and carry your light because we are just constantly inviting you into the mess. We are constantly inviting you into what is going on in our lives. And Father, we just thank you for your humility. We thank you that you do walk amongst us. And Father, we want to be a people who see miracles. So Father, I want to pray that you would enlarge in our vision. I want to pray that you would help us to be people of greater faith. Father, for those of us who may be here today and we don't have an excitement about your name, for those of us who may be tired in our walk, Father, I just want to pray that you would free us. I want to pray that you would give us a greater vision for your kingdom and for heaven and for your name. I want to pray that you would excite us about who you are 
I want to thank you that you're the one that does that, that we can't strive for that. You are the one that comes running towards us. And so, Father, I just want to pray that you would excite our hearts afresh. We thank you for the life that you carry, and I want to pray that life over us as individuals and over us as a church. We thank you for who you are. In your name, amen.